This is Speaking Freely with the ACLU of Pennsylvania. I'm Andy Hoover, your host and director of communications at the ACLU of PA. With the new year nearly upon us, it is time for our annual State of the Union discussion with Reggie Schufer, ACLU PA's executive director. Reggie and I had a wide-ranging conversation. We touched on the biggest moments in civil liberties in 2020, and Reggie takes you inside the ACLU of PA with some insights into how our team managed to carry out its work in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic. But before we get to Reggie, I want you to first hear from two of our other colleagues, Campaigns Director Denitra Sherman and Legal Director Vic Volchek. On December 10th, Denitra and Vic and several other ACLUPA staff participated in a conference call for our members about the year that was. We'll hear from Denitra first, who talked about the reality of police violence. A big piece that has come up definitely has been policing. Police accountability and police transparency has always been a top issue for us. But with the death of George Floyd and all the protests that have happened, and even throughout the state, there have been killings of black and brown people at the hands of police. Within this year alone, both in Philadelphia and like in our Lehigh Valley area, and even with the Lehigh Valley area and the police in the Philadelphia area, it has been those who have been experiencing mental health crises. We have really been, again, working to figure out what can we do as far as police reform to just do things differently. Never should a call for help regardless of what that call for help may look like, should end in anyone, regardless of their race or gender, end in death or end up in incarceration. And I just think about the most recent, you know, killing that has happened when it came to Walter Wallace Jr. It was just so sad to see, you know, everything that transpired and everything that happened. And myself, you know, even looking to be a mother of my own one day, to see a mom really standing there in the middle of the street trying her best to protect her child because she knows all too common that when it comes to police interactions, especially when it comes to black and brown people, that death could be an option if you make the wrong move. And what happened to her child that day and to see her child be killed in right in front of her, in front of the community and the trauma that that was imposed on the family and the neighbors, we don't want that to continue to happen. Like, we definitely have to do something different. And so we are working with elected officials both at the state level as well as the city level to make sure that, you know, the reforms that they're putting in place, the policies they're putting in place, again, we no longer can live in a time where we're doing things to check a box. We can no longer live in a time where we're doing things to placate citizens and community members to make them feel better or to make them less angry about what's happening in our communities. We really have to be thinking about things that are actually going to cause effectual change and things that are going to be long-lasting because we definitely have to do things a lot differently and a lot better when it comes to how communities are being policed, especially when we talk about black and brown communities. And so, again, that is an ongoing issue um, that we are going to be working on because even as I speak today, there was an incident right in uh, one of our communities in Philadelphia where a young person of color was shot by police. And, like, you know, we're still looking to see what all happened with that. But we just, this has to stop. This this cannot continue. And so, again, we will be playing our part in making sure that police reform is actually reform and not just something to do for optics, but actually something that is working for individuals. That's Denitra Sherman addressing our members on an all-member call earlier this month. Vic Volchek, our legal director, also talked with our members and highlighted how our 2020 election work started and where it ended. The second kind of big driver of our work this year, obviously, was the 2020 election. 
Um, and it, it started before COVID hit. In fact, in February, we got a call from our friends in Allegheny County who said, hey, we've just been sued complaining about us um, not taking more people off the election rolls. Would you like to come in and help us, which we immediately did. And that was the first of nine lawsuits that the ACLU and our coalition partners and allies jumped into. I mean, the most, the, the latest, which is actually still kind of simmering out there is the Donald J. Trump campaign versus Kathy Bookfar, Secretary of State. It's this crazy federal court lawsuit that was filed up in, in Williamsport, um, where the Trump campaign argued that they should cancel 6.8 million votes in Pennsylvania, all of Pennsylvania's votes, because some counties had the nerve to try to help people navigate the complexities of mail voting, and other counties didn't. That was it. No allegation of fraud, uh, certainly no evidence of fraud, uh, and yet they thought that was enough to throw out the entire election. I'm happy to say that um, uh, the judges in that case, both in the district court and at the Third Circuit Court of Appeals, said no way to get out of here. Um, but in, over the course of mostly the summer and the fall and then particularly after the election, I mean, we were involved in lawsuits um, covering really the landscape of voting issues, registration list maintenance, use of drop boxes, poll watcher restrictions, use of satellite election offices, naked ballots. I think everybody now knows what that means, although you wouldn't have known six months ago. Uh, extending mail ballot return deadlines, signature matching, notice and cure opportunities on deficient mail ballots, and canvas watcher opportunities. And in all of these cases, um, we took the side of county and state elections officials, who I, I really do think deserve credit for uh, coming through. Uh, it wasn't perfect. No election will be perfect, but really did a, a tremendous job. Uh, under very trying circumstances this year. Um, uh, so we, we jumped in, a little bit unusual for us to be on the side of, of government, but uh, really felt like democracy was at stake. Um, and our, our goal here was really to present, to represent and present voters' interests, because whether it's a political party or the government agency, their interests are going to be a little bit different. We wanted to make sure that voters' rights were front and center, and so we we teamed with NAACP, Black Political Empowerment Project, Make the Road, League of Women Voters, Common Cause, in all of these cases to make sure that their voices were centered in the litigation. And at the end of the day, I'll say, you know, I think the guardrails of democracy shook, but in the end, the courts did stand up against these really extreme arguments that were trying to disenfranchise millions of people. That's ACLU PA Legal Director Vic Volchek. Thanks to Vic and Denitra and all of our colleagues for sharing that valuable information with our members and for the great work they've all done in 2020. To that point, let's now hear from Reggie Shuford, our Executive Director, for our annual State of the Union episode. This conversation was recorded on December 11th. Well, Reggie, thanks for taking the time to sit down and talk about the year that was in the past when we've had this conversation. The first question I've asked you has been, what are you telling people about the work of the ACLU of PA in this moment? 2020 has been a year like no other. 
Ain't that the truth. <laughs> uh, but thank you, Andy, for having me. I look forward to our annual conversations about the year and review and what is on the horizon. Although each year feels like my answer has really been the same. It's been a really busy year. Our staff stepped up to the plate. In that regard, this year was no different, except I kept on steroids. <laughs> like We were never busier. Like Legitimately, we were never busier. And the obstacles and challenges that we faced, you know, as a society, right, um, certainly impacted us uh, as a staff. But at the end of the day or end of the year, what I would say is that the volume and quality of our work were outstanding, if I say so myself. And I want to ask you about some of the specifics. So, you know, the story of 2020 is obviously a triumvirate of crises. So you had the COVID-19 pandemic, the racial reckoning captured in the Black Lives Matter movement, and the election. All three had and have civil liberties implications. The election is over, the pandemic goes on, and ending white supremacy in America is a generational struggle. So talk about how ACLUPA has maneuvered through these three struggles. What have been the achievements and where is there still work to be done? So, yeah, you're right. It's been a triumvirate of crises. Like I refer to it um, often as the triplets of the pandemic, right? So the coronavirus, the police brutality against Black communities and communities of color, then all of the anxiety and uncertainty around the election itself. And the election is mostly over, I would say. <laughs> I'm not sure that it's completely over. It's like we we just had to keep saying it. It's over. The election yeah. is over. But you're right. I mean, these... We have these... to put it out there so that it becomes <laughs> reality. But it feels like the thing has nine lives. Um, but, you know, I think with all of our work, you know, we, we employ a variety of strategies. What we talk about is integrated advocacy, right? So whatever tool in our toolbox that is necessary, right, to achieve the goals that we've set out for ourselves or the outcomes that we achieve, we employ. And it's typically our litigation work, uh, our legislative and other types of advocacy, and then public education, uh, much of which occurs through the work of your great team uh, on communications. So I'll take them kind of one piece at a time, if I could. I'll start with sure. Start talking about the, the, the COVID work. And uh, I would say that it was all hands on deck for a while with respect to that work. And I think that, you know, we pivoted fairly quickly. On the one hand, we were trying ourselves to uh, adjust as an organization about working from home and, and taking care of staff and their needs and getting people set up, et cetera. But I think we pivoted fairly quickly to getting all those kind of logistical things taken care of, but also making sure that we never lost sight of the work that was essential. So the COVID work started pretty quickly after the pandemic started. And a highlight of the, that work, I'd say, has to do with the work that our legal team did, specifically around the release of several dozens of folks from immigration detention. Related to that, but in the kind of criminal context, our advocacy work ended up getting 160 people released from Pennsylvania's uh, prisons and in part based on the governor's reprieve program. So, you know, that's about 200 folks um, who were removed from prisons and jails and 
detention centers and that's potentially 200 or other you know lives saved which is very very important obviously given the size of our carceral institutions that number should have been a whole lot more one life saved is worth the effort for sure but we were ambitious and we wanted more and it wasn't ambition for the sake of ambition it was because we know that people who are incarcerated run a higher risk of contracting the virus because of the close proximities in which they live and also frankly what we've learned is a lack of hygiene products that were available to them so our focus our lar a large focus of our work was indeed about decarceration for legitimate reasons and so we had we were pretty ambitious about that work the reality however is another thing when you're confronting people with different perspectives, uh, bureaucracies, right, that can stand in the way of what it is that we are seeking. And I think also, to be frank, the lack of a strong lobby for people who are incarcerated, right? People don't often speak in positive terms about people who are incarcerated. And so, even though there were a number of us and our allies really pushing for decarceration, which was temporary. We weren't saying people should be released forever, but certainly for the duration of the pandemic, um, you know, we ran into some obstacles. One of them is in the immigration context, we wanted to get more people out by pursuing our cases as a class action lawsuit, right? Which would have en encompassed all of the people who kind of fit within certain requirements could have been a part of our lawsuit and we could have gotten relief for all of those people who were part of that class section, right? We lost that effort, unfortunately. And likewise, uh, in terms of the governor's reprieve program, it was just way too narrow. At the end of the day, only 1,600 of the 43,000 people in state prisons were eligible and he only reprieved 160 of those folks. In my opinion, if I'm going to continue to be frank as I want to do, I think that very narrow program and our inability, right, to, to have the class action lawsuit that we sought to have is now having deadly consequences. Presently, I think there are like 2,000 active cases in the DOC, um, right. Department of Corrections, and I think there have been 29 deaths since mid-October. Right. And I think those numbers are only likely to get worse. So big ambitions ran into some obstacles. One life saved is worth the effort. But we really wanted more, just to be honest. Yeah. And, and just to put uh, an exclamation point on that, one of the criteria that would make a person ineligible uh, for that reprieve program is if their conviction involved a crime that involved violence. There are elderly people in the state prison system who have been convicted of a violent crime, but it was many decades ago. Um, they are now, as I said, elderly, more vulnerable, and COVID has had a significant impact on the state prison uh, where elderly um, folks are held. Yeah, the, you know, there was expected, right? Right. There's no need to keep them um, in prison. Uh, 
particularly as a deadly virus that has a disproportionate impact on older folks, is ripping through the community and through through the prisons. And yet the governor's reprieve program, as you said, was too narrow, and it left those folks sitting there vulnerable to the virus. Right, because we know that older folks are just no longer, like they're, they're less of a threat to communities and to public safety, and they're less likely to recidivate. And we also know, as you pointed out, that they're especially vulnerable to contracting and perhaps dying from the coronavirus. So there's a lot of work, I think, that we need to be doing, even beyond the kind of context of the pandemic, that looks at who was in prison and who needs to be there and, and who don't. So I think, you know, we certainly will have learned a lot of lessons from how the pandemic was handled, just generally, but certainly in this criminal context. And I hope that going forward, we can learn from those lessons and, and just do better, just do better by people who should not run the risk of losing their lives because of our tough on crime kind of approach to, to, um, to criminal justice issues. Yeah. And then, of course, you know, coming out of a couple months of the stay-at-home orders and, and the way the COVID-19 pandemic was impacting people, then we had police officer in Minneapolis murdered George Floyd, and that reignited the Black Lives Matter movement. I know you want to talk a little bit about that as well. Yeah, this is just a, it's a perpetual issue. I feel like we could talk about this every single year when we get together to have our, our kind of annual review. Yeah. Um, so yet again, um, a number of Black people were brutalized and worse, uh, killed uh, at the hands of law enforcement who are sworn to protect all of us. And so, yeah, you mentioned George Floyd, but also Breonna Taylor uh, and, and so many, Elijah McClain, um, and the list goes on and on. And, you know, and it's important to, to think about what Black Lives Matter really means. And it's, first of all, as I've said on many occasions, it's an aspiration than a reality because Black lives don't really matter. And it's much more than criminal justice. I think at its core, Black Lives Matter is about recognizing the humanity of everybody, including Black people. And so that translates to really every context <laughs> that a person would exist in. Like, so that's about dignity at work and equity and healthcare and fairness in education and, and real equal opportunities for everybody. Now, of course, a lot of this is, in fact, focusing on policing, given what I think to be the disproportionate role of the police in our society. I think their footprint is really large, and those interactions, as we've seen and as we're discussing, can be really deadly. And so we may, we may talk about this later in terms of what's, what lies ahead, but we really need a, a, a really transformational reimagining of of the police and their role in our society. I think we call upon them to do far too much. Their footprint is too large. And we just need better and different responses to public safety concerns in our communities with, I think, an increased support for, for social services. You know, when you think about what happened in Philadelphia not that long ago with Walter Wallace, uh, he was in a an obvious mental health crisis. 
Um, and so when his mother and his family called the police, 911, that is, they were expecting a different outcome. They were not expecting that his life would be lost, clearly given that he was already in crisis. And so what, what we know, what the data show, is that when someone, and a good number of people are infected in mental health crises when the police are called, but what we know is that the police response, rather than a more appropriate mental health response, makes the situation worse, not better. And I think we had a number, I can recall three kind of off the top of my head of those three separate but similar situations involving folks in crisis and police shootings uh, here in Philadelphia, as I mentioned, but also in Lancaster and Reading. And, and we're talking about only since September. So obviously a lot, no, a lot more needs to be done. And I think that we all have to have a role kind of in what I call right-sizing the police. And that includes a role for municipal officials, especially when they're deciding upon the annual budget right? They need to know and understand that police show up in black and brown communities much differently than the way they show up in white communities. That's, that's just a fact. You know, uh, we can talk about this more uh, later, but I, I do think the ACLU is going to be engaged in police reform work in a much more intentional and heightened way than we've done in the, in the past. And I think that will not just be in Pennsylvania, but I think our colleagues across the country will be doing likewise. The moment calls for it. I mean, I think we are squandering this opportunity where folks did take to the streets in response to Breonna Taylor and George Floyd and others and, others, um, and created a moment, right, of racial reckoning and, like, and, and otherwise that um, we have to be intentional about not letting fall to the wayside. We have to take advantage of this opportunity. And, you know, at the ACLU of Pennsylvania, all of this crosses all aspects of our work, from legal, as I mentioned, to advocacy, and certainly to communications. Like, we need, again, every tool in the toolbox to, to accomplish the, the goals that we've set out for ourselves. And I'll just mention one thing that we've not done a lot of, but I'm delighted that we have, is that uh, we're, we're actually at the United Nations right now partner with the Drexel's Client School of Law and filing with the United Nations a letter of complaint explaining how Philadelphia police violated international law in response to the protests we talked about that happened here in early June. And, and just as we were in front of Philadelphia City Council to advocate for a public health response to mental health crises, again, a public health response as opposed to the automatic default police response. So again, every tool in our toolbox. So the the examples you're giving, you know, those are that's outward work. And by the way, we'll we'll include links uh, for the UN report and some of the other work uh, in the show notes. I do want to also bring up the fact that I I know that one of the things that you feel ACLU supporters should understand is what it has taken for our team to manage these last ten months. Can you speak to that? Sure. Let me just say it's, <laughs> it's been a lot. <laughs> uh, it's, been a, it's been a lot and it's been challenging and understandably so given all the things that we just talked about, all the issues that we are confronting as a, as a society. But everybody stepped up, everybody chipped in in some way. Uh, we all did what we could 
to preserve civil liberties in Pennsylvania. And obviously it's an ongoing fight. It's a marathon and not a sprint. But, you know, I have to also acknowledge that at the same time, these crises impacted us as human beings too. It's not just about the external facing work that we do, but it's also about the people that are a part of our team and our organization that are doing that work. And there's no doubt the work is important. I think I'm very proud of that work, but you know, the people are more important. The people doing that work are more important. And so it's been important to me and other managers of the organization to kind of meet people where they are, to moderate our expectations given what folks are confronting, to encourage people to take time off, to take care of themselves, to take care of their family and other responsibilities they have, to, to shut off their computers at a, at a reasonable hour, you know, and even given unexpected days off and a week off here and a week off there, just trying to be attuned to where people are and what they need and to be paying close attention to all the things I think we need to do to help people not only do their jobs, but more importantly, to just um, take care of themselves, frankly. So we've talked about two of the three crises, uh, the pandemic and Black Lives Matter. I also want to ask you about the election. This election has certainly tested democracy in the United States. It appears to have held, but as our legal director has said, the guardrail shook. How are you feeling about democracy in America right now? And what challenges do you think are ahead? Yeah, I agree. I agree with our, our colleagues that the guardrails definitely shook and there may even be some <laughs> aftershocks yeah. frankly, as we speak. Um, so I think I've learned a couple of lessons. I think one is that our democracy is incredibly resilient and it appears to have survived <laughs> and is surviving, I would say. But on the other hand, and this, you know, it also seems somewhat fragile to me. And in that regard, it must always be protected and never taken for granted. You know, other institutions too, like the pandemic has been clarifying in, in other ways too. And what we've seen is that certain institutions perhaps are more fragile than others. And specifically, I'm talking about our public health institutions, which did not so much uncover, but expose for some people, uh, but reaffirm for others that poor people and people of color are disproportionately vulnerable to things like COVID-19. And so I think that we hold up our democracy as a really solid institution that can kind of respond to assaults and, and, you know, and survive those assaults. But I think it takes our help, frankly. I think it's not going to do it just on its own, but it requires all of us of good, good will to, to do our part to ensure it survives as well. So in the midst of all this, we've undertaken a strategic planning process, which includes examining and understanding equity and inclusion, not only in the outside world, but within our organization as well. Describe that process. What are you hoping we gain by taking this on and, and by going through the strategic planning? I think, again, the pandemic has been really clarifying, mm -hmm. <laughs> and, then I, and I've learned 
a couple of lessons uh, about the strategic planning process. The first lesson is that it's really hard to do a strategic plan during a pandemic uh, where the primary medium for communicating is via Zoom and we have staff and three offices uh, across the Commonwealth and we can't really be in the same room with each other to talk about some really challenging issues. But also, uh, I guess the second thing I'd say is I think it's always a good thing for an organization to step back every two years to kind of level set and determine uh, what the organization's priorities are going to be for the next two years. So all of that is really, really good. I think the main thing that I want to say, given what we talked about before and all the issues that are going on uh, in our country as we speak and over the summer with the, the protests, et cetera, all of which we were involved with in some way or the other, that if we're doing that work externally, right, to make our country more fair, more just, more equitable, then that work that is outward facing, in my opinion, rings hollow if we're not doing that same work internally. Again, the, the work is vital, but the people are what's most important. The people doing that work are must what is most important. And they need to feel valued, they need to feel respected, and that they belong, that they have a voice in the direction of the organization, and that those voices are being heard. So I'm, I'm proud of the work that we're doing externally and committed to the work that is similar that we're doing uh, internally. 2020 was also the ACLU centennial year. What does that mean for you as someone who's worked here for 25 years? Well, it means that I'm old. Uh, I, I, I no, no longer the the young kid on on the block. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, I I think what it also showed me is that for an organization that is a hundred years old, that there's still a need for us. There's still a need for an organization like the ACLU to protect fundamental constitutional rights and civil liberties. And that is the case no matter who was in the White House. You know, as we are are kind of famous for saying, we've sued every president, right, (laughs) that we can remember. Um, Joe Biden can get ready for it. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Joe Biden, Biden, uh, you know, be on the lookout. uh, Is a heads up. Um, And so no matter who's in the White House, uh, there are battles to, to fight. And also our relevance is not just about kind of the, ne- the, the national picture. It's really also, given that we have ACLU offices in every state, it's about what's happening in states and at state legislatures. And frankly, some of what happens in state legislatures can really have even more of an impact on, on folks in, in our communities. So... I think, uh, and, you know, to answer your question, I, I've, I've learned that notwithstanding that we are 100 years old, there's still a need for our organization. So this annual conversation we have is mostly about the year that was, but we usually close it by giving folks a sneak peek at what may be ahead over the next 12 months. So what's ahead in 2021? Well, we talked about, I think, uh, I think we certainly would want to acknowledge that we can expect some backlash, frankly. There will be people who were not uh, happy about the outcome of the presidential election. 
And historically, when that's been the case, we've experienced and seen kind of backlash in state houses, certainly on issues of voting. I think we've already seen some of that happening here in Pennsylvania. And I think there may also be some backlash in other areas like LGBT and Q. So we just need to be on the lookout for some of that backlash with respect to vote by mail and all, all types of, of potential issues. But frequently, um, voter suppression measures. We're also going to continue focusing on criminal legal reform, which has been part of our, our work for the past several years that encompasses decarceration and harm reduction and just the elimination of the rampant racial disparities in the criminal legal system. There may be legislation on the horizon that would further some of these efforts. Plans are still solidifying, but we're looking at continuing to push for some type of reform to probation, reducing extreme sentencing, um, and having some offenses graded, like repeat retail theft and marijuana. And we might take another shot at reforming civil asset forfeiture. You know, our, uh, our allies who are doing amazing work here in Pennsylvania and across the Commonwealth, we certainly want to support the work that they're doing, just for example, on compassionate release and life without uh, parole sentencing. So yeah, a, a, big, a big focus of the work in 2020 will be the work that we've been doing already to some degree on criminal legal reform. And a lot of that work has been advocacy, but some of it has been legal. And so we expect our legal team to do even more of that work. We have some stuff on the horizon. We can't be more specific in this moment, <laughs> but stay tuned. But uh, we're going to be doing some work on diminishing and ending cash bail and rolling back excessive and burdensome, burdensome fines and fees. So again, can't say more about that right now, but please do stay tuned. Um, I also mentioned, uh, uh, Andy, that we're going to be doing a lot more work on combating police brutality and, and just reimagining how policing is done in our country, certainly here in Pennsylvania. And we want partners in that. Um, there's certainly a role for organizations like the ACLU, but we think other people need to be involved in that work as well. And we want municipal and state governments to be more specific, to, to divest in police and reinvest that money in, you know, supporting community programs that actually help people improve their quality of lives, as opposed to what I believe to be overspending on law enforcement. So that's going to take a lot of effort, of course, but I'm, I think that we as an organization, both here in Pennsylvania and across the country and nationally, are committed to doing what it takes to see a different way to policing in our society. And, you know, frankly, that also includes stuff like pushing more schools to get police out of schools rather than having them so enmeshed in students' lives. Yeah. So, yeah, that's, that's some of the stuff we're doing on criminal justice reform and policing, et cetera. And the COVID work is just going to keep going uh, until the pandemic is over. You know, there there's more to do. And I know a number of our colleagues uh, in multiple departments are still active on that. Yeah, I mean, we're still involved in kind of litigation um, in Philadelphia and Allegheny County, for example, over conditions at their local jails, you know, trying to mitigate the harm of COVID-19 to people who are incarcerated again 
because they're especially vulnerable given their inability to physically distance. The ultimate goal is to have these institutions decarcerating, right? Releasing people, particularly those who are vulnerable. But in the meantime, we need to be doing what we can to make those conditions in those settings as safe as possible. But decarceration is a goal, um, even in normal times. It's especially important, notwithstanding the resistance that we talked about earlier during the course of a pandemic. Did you have any last things you wanted to add? <laughs> did, did we, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm sure there's something we missed, but uh, well, yeah. I just wanted to give you a chance to, to close it out. Of course. So let me just say one of the issues that we continue to work on, uh, which is as important as just about any that we've talked about, is just the, the criminalization of poverty and that so many people who are poor are kept in jail precisely because they are poor and in my personal opinion are targeted for incarceration because they are poor. So money bail is one example of that. You know, as we know, it was never intended to be a tool for keeping people detained. It was really meant to provide incentive for people to return to court. And there are ways to do that other than uh, money bail as we've seen in other jurisdictions like uh, the District of Columbia who've proven that you can do, you know, what you want in terms of getting people to return to their court dates um, without cash bail. Also, just folks are charged fines and fees that they can't afford, uh, um, and they're kept in jail for that as well. So we'll be doing some work on that. And then I, I said the final thing I'd say that we'll be paying attention to is what, what we can expect with respect to potential backlash uh, in the area of LGBT and Q equality. I think just as with some voting stuff, we might see some backlash in state legislatures. I think we can likely expect um, there to be people using religion as an excuse to discriminate against folks in the LGBT and Q communities. And I think that we uh, as an organization are going to be trying to do some work around the decriminalization of, of sex work. So busy, uh, as always, we have our work cut out for us. Uh, I hope that we can get some rest over the course over the next couple of weeks, because 2020 is going to be have us on our toes as well. And so I guess the message to our members is after hearing all of that, uh, make sure you make your year end donation. <laughs> please, please, please. Thank you for your support uh, uh, year in and year out. And we really need it in this moment as well. All right, Reggie, thanks for the time. Uh, I know folks really appreciate your leadership. Um, I say folks, I'm using that broadly, our staff, our board, all of our members who have the chance to to hear you or see you and interact with you. They all appreciate uh, your leadership. It's been it's been tough, uh, as you know, um, these last uh, nine to 10 months. But, you know, we're we're coming through it as a team. And thanks for everything you've done for the organization. Well, thank you, Andy. As I tell you often, uh, I value our working relationship and I value all of the staff. As you said, it's not been an easy time for our country or as, a, as an organization, um, but we're in it together. We do important work and uh, we intend to keep doing that. Uh, so I'm honored to have this role as ED at the ACLU of Pennsylvania, and I look forward to continue to do much more um, of that work um, as we look ahead. 
That's ACLU PA Executive Director Reggie Shuford. It has been a year for the ACLU. I want to thank Reggie and all of my colleagues for their perseverance and hard work through what has been a trying year. And thank you to all of our members and supporters for backing us up and being a part of this work in 2020. Be sure to check us out on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and Medium. And please rate the show on your podcast app of choice. That's how more people can find us. That brings episode 54 to a close. We will take a hiatus for the holidays, and we'll have more episodes coming in midwinter. The editor of Speaking Freely is Amy Giacomucci. Our music is from bensound.com. The executive director of the ACLU of Pennsylvania is Reggie Shuford. I'm Andy Hoover, the host, writer, and director of this podcast. Until 2021, be healthy and be free. Thank you.